There's a lot to like about living in Southern California, one of which I was reminded of this past week when I saw on the news in downtown Los Angeles that there was torrential flooding. And growing up in Texas, torrential flooding means if you've got your pickup truck that's jacked up and lifted, you can't get through the water. I kid you not, I was watching the news and there was a Prius that was just tooling along right through the water, and, and that was torrential flooding. That's, that's a nice thing to be able to have as, as torrential flooding. But there's other things too, right? There's the beach, there's the sun, there's the weather, there's, there's everything else that we like out here. But one of the things that's unique maybe for, for me versus where you guys have come from is I like the fact that I can go to bed in Southern California and not worry about scorpions. <laughs> now, coming from Arizona, the, the same can't be said. In fact, when I moved my family there, my wife was pregnant with Luke at the time and uh, we were getting settled into our rental house there, and they had a, a typical, if you've ever been to Phoenix or Mesa area, Arizona backyard, just gravel and rocks and cactus and, and different things like that. And uh, one of the people at our church said, hey, just be careful of the scorpions. And my mind goes to Jeff Irwin and those big, gigantic crocodile hunter type scorpions, right? I'm thinking, well, I, those are fine. They're outside. I'll, I'll just make sure that we don't play with them, right? But I come to find out it's not those that they were warning me about. It was the tiny ones, the ones that are maybe about an inch, if, if that. And the way that God has designed these ones is they blend into the track, to the, the carpet in every track home that's ever been built. They're the same color as that tan beige carpet. And so we were there for maybe a month or so, and people had talked to me about the scorpions and terrified me about the scorpions. And then I got up and I went into the bathroom, and, and sure enough, in the middle of the night, I almost stepped on one of these scorpions. And you think to yourself, well, what's the big deal? It's so tiny. But the tinier ones pack the bigger punch. Their stings are more potent. And these bark scorpions are particularly bad because if you're allergic to them and you don't know until you've been stung by one, you can go into anaphylactic shock and die. So people are like, you know what? If you get stung, just make sure somebody's there with you and can watch you for 24 hours or so. Make sure that you are still alive at the end of that. So that's going through my mind. So I see one and I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, one, all right, fine. And, and I, I took care of it, got some tissue paper, crumpled it up, threw it in the, in the toilet. But then I, I turn around and there's two more on the ground. And this night is getting worse, right? And then after I take care of those, I start looking now. I'm like, okay, where, how many are there more of these? And I found three more. That, I found four in total in the, the bathroom that night and, and did not sleep well that night or for the rest of my time in Arizona uh, at all. Um, <laughs> No, they, they tell you when you get into bed, peel your sheets all the way back because they like the dark places at the foot of the bed and they'll crawl up there and sting you in the middle of the night. I, it's, it's not good. It's not fun. It's part of the curse. It's part of the, part of the, the fall of mankind. And they'll hang out in the towels. When you get out of the shower, you got to shake your towel out. I know it's so bad. Shake your shoes out. So I love being here because I don't have to worry about scorpions. But I, I started talking to people and I started saying, how do I guard against these? What do I need to do? What can I spray? What can I, let's get the, the tent, let's put that over the house and just bug bomb the whole thing. Well, you can't because their exoskeletons are, they, they can't be penetrated by the chemicals of normal pesticides. So the, the guy told me the, the best way to deal with the population is to get yourself a black light and a blowtorch. <laughs> Where am I living at this point, right? So I, what? And he said, yeah, they glow under blacklight and then you just take your blowtorch and you just light them up. I, I never did that. But uh, they, they said that's how you can control their population. The problem with scorpions is, is not just that you can't spray for them, but they're, they're so small and they're so thin that you really can't protect your house against them. 
they can get in through the smallest and tiniest cracks in your foundation. They can creep in underneath the, the threshold of your door. They can, in fact, a lot of them will come in off of tree branches that happen to touch the roof of your home. They'll come off the tree branches onto your house and like a Navy SEAL, crawl up and, and down through your vent pipe and then they're in your house. And so we decided to move. No, we... Uh, <laughs> But we, we lived with this tension of going, okay, Lord, <laughs> uh, I, I, we're going to trust you. You're sovereign over scorpions too. But that's the thing is, is they creep in unnoticed. And as Jude was writing to his audience, he was writing about another danger that was creeping in unnoticed. It was creeping into the church there. And he says in Jude verse 4, he says that there are false teachers who have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for a condemnation. And he describes these people as godless, and he describes them as worldly, and he describes them as, as people who have perverted the grace of God and are denying their only Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. And so he issues the call at the beginning of Jude after saying, you know, I wanted to write to you about the gospel. I wanted to write to you about the things that we share in common in, in a letter that was going to be encouraging to you, but I found it necessary, he says, to write to you to contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. We, we hear that phrase and we think maybe initially, okay, we're ready to man the walls and do battle against the external threats. We're ready to, to follow Jude's command here and step up. And maybe we think about uh, the, the external threats that existed during this time. Right, they, they were the, the Judaizers, the ones that would follow behind some of the, uh, the apostles, follow behind Paul, and after Paul would leave a town, the Judaizers would come in and they would take the, the gospel and they would add to it. They would say, well, yeah, Jesus is part of the equation, but then you also have to be circumcised, or you also have to follow this law, or you also have to obey these dietary restrictions. And so they were adding to the requirements of the gospel, and certainly that's a threat that was from the outside, and, and the church needs to contend against that threat. Or maybe you think about the, uh, just the, the polytheistic uh, culture that existed during that time. All the different gods and goddesses that were around, and the, the temptation to maybe fall prey to the Gentile world, the pagan world, and, and incorporate some of that into the, the church itself there uh, that Jude was writing to. But even that wasn't what Jude was talking about. And so maybe we think, well, perhaps it was the Roman oppression, the political oppression. We think about the original followers of Jesus and all of them except for John. And John was exiled for his faith, but all of the other 11 were, uh, were killed, were martyred for their relationship to Jesus Christ. They were executed because of their belief in Jesus Christ. And so maybe we think, well, this is a political oppression type situation that is leading Jude to say, contend for the faith. But it's none of those. And it's not an external threat. It's not an outside force. It's internal. It's the people who have crept in, he says, unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this destruction. People who he describes as ungodly, who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our master and Lord Jesus Christ. They had invaded and crept into, unnoticed, into the, the church that Jude was writing to. And so as Jude wrote, he wrote, and it was an all-hands-on-deck call. It wasn't a letter that he wrote just to the pastors or just to the leadership of the church. He wrote to the whole church, everyone in the church, each individual member, believer, follower of Christ. And he said, contend for the faith. It's something that is a call on us as well. We attend a church and are a part of a church and we need to praise God that this church has been founded on and continued to abide by a, a value of God's word as authoritative and inspired. 
where we can say that one of our distinctives is that we have a high view of God that's informed by his word, that we have a, a high view of expositional preaching because we believe that what is, is gonna change lives is not the wisdom of man from behind this pulpit, but the word of God correctly handled from behind this pulpit. And we can praise God and rejoice in that, but that doesn't mean that we're immune from what Jude was addressing in this letter. It doesn't mean that we're immune from the threat of false teaching. It doesn't mean that we're immune from people creeping in unnoticed in our midst. And the call for us is the same as it was for Jude's audience. Contend for the faith. And like Jude's audience, it's a call that goes beyond the pulpit. It's a call that goes beyond the pulpit into each and every one of our lives to make sure that we are doing our part to shore up our doctrinal and devotional borders, to make sure that there's no leaks in our lives, no cracks in our foundation, no gaps where false teaching or anything that might pose a threat or a danger to this body of Christ might creep in. If you're not already there, I'd invite you to open up to Jude. We're going to be looking closely this morning together at Jude 20 through 23. You can follow along with me as I read. It says in verse 20, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by flesh. So Jude begins and he says, but you beloved, it's a, a word that, that word beloved, he's signifying he's addressing Christians, he's addressing believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's creating a contrast because before this, he's been talking about the false teachers. From verse four all the way through verse 19, his focus has been on those that have crept in unnoticed. He's been describing the types of false teaching and the false teaching that they were promoting and that they were peddling and the things that the church needed to be on guard and aware of. And now though he's turning his attention back to the believers in the church, he had said, you need to be contending for the faith. And now he's gonna unpack for us, what does it look like for us to practically contend for the faith? And so he says, but you beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God. There's one command that governs all of verses 20 through 23, and it's that command that I just read there at the end. Keep yourselves in the love of God. That word keep means to preserve or to, uh, to remain, to abide, to stay. Remain in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And there's two essences, there's two senses of being in God's love. There's the sense that as soon as we are saved, as soon as we have repented from our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are placed into the love of God. And that is a position in which we are secure until the day that we are called home to be with him or Christ returns. That's taught even in Jude. Jude verse 1 says, Jude, a servant of Christ Jesus, brother of James, to those who are called, here it is, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. There's a part of being in the love of God that is ours as soon as we are saved and, and it's irremovable and it's irrevocable. We will always be in the love of God if we are genuine followers of Christ, if we have truly followed the gospel, repented of our sins, and put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We are placed into that love of God. Romans 8, 39, nothing can separate us from that love. Not height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. We are secure, sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. 
We are in God's love. But there's another element to being in God's love that is an element of our responsibility. And that's what Jude's driving at here in verse 21. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. It's that responsibility that we have to make sure that we are living a life that lines up with the profession of faith that we have made. That we are living out that faith, that we are bearing the fruit of the Spirit, that we are giving ourselves over to not just the the doctrine, but to to the devotion to the Lord. Jude talks about that in verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. Jesus helps us understand this idea even more in John 15. John 15, 9 through 10, Jesus there says this. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And then he says, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. So what is our responsibility? What does it mean for us to keep ourselves in the love of God? It means that we need to be abiding in the love of God by keeping the commandments of God. Well, why would Jude focus on that? Why would Jude zoom in on our obedience, our keeping the commandments of God here? I think it's largely due to the the nature of the false teaching that Jude was particularly combating. He was combating a false teaching that was worldly, that was uh, licentious, that was Uh, that had perverted the grace of God. This was a libertinism. This was an idea that that there was no no need for strict adherence to to biblical principles. We didn't really need to obey, that that sin was no big deal, that we could just write it off because, hey, Jesus died and, and our sins are forgiven, so why does it matter if I've sinned? It's okay, it's all grace. We'd like to say that that false teaching is out of the church completely. However, we all know the reality that it's not. And so Jude was writing, saying to them, contend for the faith. And the reason he was saying, keep yourselves in the love of God is because the false teachers had walked away from the love that they at least had professed. They were saying, yes, I'm a follower of God, but by their lives, Jude 4, they were denying Christ. And so Jude is saying, you need to make sure that your life matches up with your profession, that there's an agreement there. Yes, it's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period, end of story. We do not merit our salvation. However, our salvation changes us. It regenerates us. We are a new creation in Christ, and that is going to manifest itself in how we now live, how we now conduct ourselves. And so Jude wrote, keep yourselves in the Father's love, but he explains that more. He says, building one another up, in your most holy faith, and praying in the Holy Spirit, building one another up in your most holy faith, in or on. What is our most holy faith? Well, it's what Jude referred to at the beginning of this letter when he said, contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. What's the faith once for all delivered to the saints? The teaching of the apostles and the prophets. It's the word of God. And so Jude is calling on his hearers, his listeners, this all hands on deck saying, everybody has this responsibility. We all need to be about the work of building ourselves up and building one another up on the foundation of God's word, making sure that everything is built upon his truth, that he is the plumb line, that he is the standard for what is true. If it doesn't fit with his word, it has no place. Paul talks about this analogy of being built up together corporately in Ephesians chapter 2. 
He says in verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Later on, he talks about the apostles and the teachers and the evangelists being given to equip the saints for the building up of the body of Christ. There's a responsibility that we all have individually to keep ourselves in the love of God, to be making sure that our profession matches up with our our lifestyle and, and how we're living our lives. But there's a corporate responsibility as well to this. That we all need to be together, joined together, building on the, the, the un, uh, unmovable, the uncompromisable uh, word of God. That that is our foundation together. As false teachers work their way in and, and creep in to our midst, their goal is going to be to divide. Their goal is going to be to create divisions and gaps and holes and to compromise that structure and foundation. So church, we need to make sure that we are together on this that we are one, that we are, as Paul says, one body made up of many members. We need each other in this. We all have a role to play. We all have a a post to man, so to speak, in making sure that we're guarding against the, the threats of false teaching. But he also says that we need to be praying in the Holy Spirit building one another up, building ourselves up on the, the foundation of our most holy faith, on the word of God, and also praying in the Holy Spirit. If you think about the enemy that we are up against, really Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter six, right, that our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. The battle of false teaching is not against false teachers. It's against the false teacher. It's against the father of lies. It's against Satan himself. And so as we think about that and we think about the, the character of Satan and the fact that he is, he is not dumb when it comes to his plans. In the Garden of Eden, it says that Satan uh, came to, to Eve as the serpent. Why? Because the serpent was more what? Crafty than any of the other animals. When Satan attacks, Satan attacks with minor twists and perversions and and questions and undermining. And before we know it, the whole structure has collapsed if we're not on guard. And so when Paul says that, that excuse me, when, when Jude says that we need to be praying in the Holy Spirit, what he's calling us to do is a, a dependence on the Lord. We have a, a big enemy, but we've got a bigger God. And so we need to be constantly going before him, praying to the Lord for the strength, praying for the, the ability to withstand the attacks of the enemy, praying that we will, as a church body, be airtight to not allow false teaching to seep in. You know that passage that Paul's talking about, the armor of God. He goes through and we think about the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith and we think about the breastplate of righteousness and and the helmet of salvation and the shoes of of the gospel. We think about all of those things, but there's a way that it ends that sometimes we kind of gloss over, but it's important and it echoes, it reiterates what Jude's driving at here. Ephesians 6, 18, it says this. As we put on the, the full armor of God daily, Verse 18, praying, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So keep yourself in the love of God. Build yourselves up on the holy foundation of God's word. This is a corporate activity. And we also need to be praying, praying for ourselves, praying for one another, that we will be vigilant and airtight when it comes to defending against false teaching. You may think to yourself, but, but Pastor PJ, we go to Compass Bible Church. 
We go here. We go to a church that, that champions sound doctrine and faithful preaching of the word of God. And praise God we do. But I want to push back on that notion for a second. All of our false teachers in this world don't come like the, the, the Canadian pastor, and I use that term incredibly loosely, who this week uh, was in the news on the briefing because she's identified as an atheist, an atheist pastor. And the United Church of, of Canada got together and they said, you know, we're going to have a heresy trial on this, which makes sense, right? A, a pastor who says God doesn't exist. That's a big problem. If you're considering going into the ministry and you don't think God exists, let me just encourage you to find something else to do, right? But, but this, this denomination, the United Church of Canada said, you know what, we'll reach an agreement, a settlement. And that's just code for compromise because what they did is, well, they said, we'll go ahead and just let you continue to do your thing at your church. So there's a church in Canada being pastored by an atheist. Would that all of our false teaching was that obvious, Right? A child can recognize that and stand up and say, that's, that's, one of those things is not like the other one. That's not right, right? <laughs> but not all false teaching is that obvious. And so I know we go to Compass Bible Church, and that's a great thing, but that doesn't mean we're off the hook. That doesn't mean that we're immune, because again, this is an all hands on deck thing. All of us have a role to play in the health of the body of Christ here in Aliso. You have a role to play in that. And so I want you to think about a couple things. I want you to think about the books that you read, the music that you listen to, the radio and the podcast that you tune into, the preachers that you listen to outside of this pulpit. Think about the political pundits, the talk shows that you tune into, the Facebook, the, the social media that you interact with. Think about even your, your own family members. All of those are avenues where if we're not on guard, those, those can be avenues where false teaching can seep in can creep in unnoticed. And if it begins to undermine certain people within our body of Christ, it's going to weaken us corporately as a whole church. So I want to encourage you, number one this morning is this, vigilantly guard against compromise. Vigilantly guard against compromise. I have a nine-year-old who's pretty good around a swimming pool. And so when we go to somebody's house who has a pool, uh, you know, I, I do watch him when he's out there, but I, I'm not overly concerned about how he's going to be able to do because he can swim. He handles himself all right. But I also have two one-year-old twins. And when we go over to somebody's house with a pool and we're in the backyard near that pool, I am, I'm watching them like a hawk. I'm making sure that they're not going to get too close to the water, too close to the edge of the pool. Why? Because they don't know how to swim. And so that pool poses a, a grave danger and a threat to them. And so I watch them and I've got a keen focus on them. And I may be talking to somebody, but I, I, my attention is going to be fixated on my two boys to make sure they don't play too close or drift too close. Or that if they've got their feet in the pool, that they're not going to lunge forward and fall in. Why? Because of the danger that's there. I'm watching them vigilantly. Well, that's how we need to be with our own lives when it comes to the threat of false teaching. We need to watch our lives vigilantly to make sure that there's no place that false teaching could creep in. So again, think through some of those categories that I just listed, the books that you read. Think about what's the theology being communicated in those books. How about the music that you listen to? Sometimes we jump in the car and we put on Caleb because it's safe for the whole family, but I have to tell you, it's not always safe for the whole family. 
There are songs that are out there that have crept their way into contemporary Christian music that have theology that is just false and wrong and it's dangerous. And it's been paired with a catchy tune and some, some catchy lyrics that surround it. And before you know it, if you give yourselves over to listening to that, it's going to be going through your mind as you're going about your day. And the, the things that are coursing through your mind and these words that are ascribed to and be, being under the, the guise of being something that's godly are nothing but false teaching. And so you need to be careful in what you're taking in, even on the, the radio as you're listening to worship music. It needs to be in accordance with the word of God. If it's not, it's dangerous. Get rid of it. What about the, the preachers that you listen to outside of this pulpit? How are they doing? What's their theology? Are they, are they accurate to the word of God? How about your favorite talk show, political pundit, whatever it may be, news station, articles that you read? What's the worldview that you're buying into there? What beliefs are you aligning yourself with? Do they follow with the word of God? Do they align with the word of God? No matter what side of the aisle they may fall on. And then your family members, as you interact with them, as you have conversations around the dinner table, or as you get together with extended family around holidays, or whatever it may be, what are you talking about? What are you agreeing with? What are you giving assent to? Are they in line with God's word? Are you guarding yourself against false teaching in these ways? Uh, Jude's answer for how to do that is he's saying that we need to keep ourselves in the love of God. We need to be in God's word. We need to be following God's word. We need to be obeying God's word. He also says we need to be praying. We need to be praying for ourselves, praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we will remain strong, that we will remain vigilant over these things. And we need to be building up corporately together on the word of God, the foundation of God, uniting together. Yes, we're in a great church and praise God for that, but we are not immune to the threat. We need to be vigilantly guarding against compromise. And so we say, okay, so how long? What does this look like? Uh, what's, what's next? If I'm, if I'm doing this, if I'm vigilantly guarding against compromise, what, what else should I be doing? Jude continues in the text in verse 21, and he says this, waiting for waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. That word waiting for, when it's used elsewhere in the New Testament, has the idea of, of a messianic hope or an eschatological, an end times expectation associated with it. In Mark chapter 15, verse 43, it's used of Joseph of Arimathea. It says, who was a respected member of the council who was himself looking for the kingdom of God that we're looking for. It's the same word here, waiting for, expecting, awaiting the culmination of, of the hopes of the Jews, of the hopes of Israel, the, the coming of the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter two, verse 25, you have Simeon. Simeon is a man who is in Jerusalem, it says, whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel waiting for the, the coming of the Messiah, expecting the coming of the Messiah. And then just a few verses later, you have Anna, who was also doing the same thing. It says in Luke chapter 238, coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for, there's that word again, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. In Titus 213, Christians, we are called to be waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3.12, we are called to be waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. 
waiting for, that eagerness. So yes, as we're keeping ourselves in the love of God, as we're being built up and building one another up, as we're praying in the Holy Spirit, we need to be waiting for the mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. There are times that my kids around birthdays or Christmas will receive a gift from grandma and grandpa and and it will show up and it's in the cardboard box that comes from Amazon because that's where we get all of our gifts, right? And they'll look at that box and they'll ask their mom, they'll say, mom, can I open this? And she'll say, no, you've got to wait until dad gets home. Well, guess what I find when I pull into the driveway later on that evening? I find five faces pressed up against the glass of the window waiting for dad to get home. And there's an eagerness there. And I like to think it's because of me, but it's not. It's they want to be able to open what's in that box, right? But there's an eagerness. They're like, when is he going to get here? And they kind of know the general time usually that I'll be showing up and that I'll be arriving home. And so they're ready and they're waiting because they, they're, they, they want what they're waiting for. We need to have that same eagerness when it comes to Christ. And what we're waiting for, though, is something so much better than Amazon could ever give us. We're waiting for the mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And there's a degree to which we already have that mercy. It's ours. We've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We are being guarded, 1 Peter chapter 1, for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So there's a sense in which the mercy of God is ours already. But yet there's another element in which none of us have fully experienced that yet. Because the day we fully experience the mercy of God is the day in which we stand before God and we realize fully that there's not a drop of his wrath left for us. And that what we hear from him is, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That's the day when the mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life will be ours fully. That's the day that we are waiting for, that we are longing for, that we are pressing ourselves up against the glass and looking forward to. It's a safeguard for us. The writer of Hebrews wrote to the the people who were being tempted to drift away from the gospel. And he wrote to them, and, and he wrote to them of the dangers of that. And so in Hebrews chapter two, verses one through three, he says this, he says, therefore we must pay close attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. He's talking about the law there. In verse three, he says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? In Hebrews chapter three, he says this, Verse 12, he says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold on our original confidence firm to the end. You know, when Jude encourages us to be waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, He's doing some of the the same things there as the writer of Hebrews was doing. He's saying, fixate on the reward. Consume yourself with that so that you won't be tempted to drift. You won't be tempted to pursue the false teaching that's crept in unnoticed. You won't be tempted to, to question whether or not this is the right path. You'll have your eyes firmly fixed on that reward, on the mercy that will be ours in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. It's point number two for us this morning. It's this, maintain an eager focus on eternal life. Maintain an eager focus on eternal life. 
Again, it's a, a double-pronged admonition here from Jude. On the one hand, we've got the reward that we need to consider. The mercy, the, the well-done, good and faithful servant, the eternity spent with God, that, that, that side that we say, okay, I want to maintain a focus on that because I want that reward. On the other side, there's to consider what's at stake if we were to drift away. And you say, well, what about if I'm genuinely a believer in Christ? I thought I wouldn't drift away. And no, you won't drift away. But again, there's still that responsibility to keep yourself in the love of God. You need to feel that, that healthy fear, that healthy understanding of, okay, I want to make sure that I am walking the path, that I am fixated, that I am focused on that mercy that's going to be mine one day. And I don't want to do anything to even risk any sort of compromise on that. Yes, I know that I'm being guarded by the power of God for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Yet, I still want to live a life of faithful obedience to him and never, ever call into question that mercy. There's a young man whose name is Alex Honnold, H-O-N-N-O-L-D. If you're afraid of heights, don't look up Alex Honnold. Alex Honnold is a free climber. And a free climber, what that is, besides somebody who's insane, is it, it's somebody who climbs rock faces without the rope and without the harness, and, and all they take up with them are their, their climbing shoes and their chalk bag. Strap that on to their shorts, and they, up they go, up the mountain. And that, this is Alex Honnold. And Alex Honnold has, has come to be well-known in that circle because he's scaled both Half Dome and he scaled El Capitan without any ropes or harnesses. And if you look up on YouTube, there's a, a TED Talk that he gave, and it, it's, it's only about 10, 12 minutes. It's, it's actually fascinating. You'll need a chalk bag watching it if your palms are, are prone to sweating, thinking about being on a, a rock face. But he talks about his first climb up Half Dome. And he, he talks about how he had mapped out the course and he knew the path. He had climbed it with ropes. And he, he talks about he knew the, the way that he was going to go up. But on the way up, when he went to go free climb it, when he went up, when it, when it really counted, right, he decided that he was going to take a variation. He was going to go a different way that was going to avoid some of the most difficult climbing that was on that route that he had planned. But the problem is when he drifted from the route that he knew was the right route, the route that he knew was the way up, he found himself in a position eventually where he said, I don't know where I am. The problem is he was 2,000 feet up the rock face at that point. And he's hanging, not by a rope, not by a harness, not with a friend that's belaying him, none of that. He's hanging by his fingers and his toes on ledges that are about the width of your thumb in some places. And he can hear the people on the summit of the mountain. And he can hear them laughing. And he can hear the joy up there. And he says that all he could think about was, I, I want to be there. I want to be anywhere else but where I am. See, when he drifted from the path, when he took his eyes off of the goal, which he knew was clear and laid out for him, and he knew the path that would get him to that goal, when he drifted from that, he found himself in grave danger. Now he ends up, being okay and climbs that and then goes on to climb El Capitan. And he, he said when he went to go climb El Cap, he spent seven years preparing. In fact, he spent a full year just attached with ropes on the side of that rock face, looking at every handhold, memorizing every position on the path that he was going to take so that he could do it as second nature as he climbed because he had learned the dangers of drifting. He had learned the dangers of shifting his focus off of what he needed to be focused on. 
So for you and I, we need to maintain that focus on eternal life. How can we do that? What are some ways we can do that? Well, number one, we encourage you to spend time in the warning passages of Hebrews on a regular basis. You say, well, that sounds great. Sounds encouraging. It's, it's necessary, though. It's a good reminder for us of what's at stake. It's a good reminder for us that we need to be keeping ourselves in the love of God. It's a good reminder for us that, uh, that we need to be making sure that, that there's nothing in our lives that would open the door to us drifting. It's a good way for us to, again, vigilantly guard against that compromise as we focus on the mercy that's to be ours at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So spend time in the warning passages. But on the more positive side, spend time in passages like Revelation 21 and 22. Some of my favorite passages of scripture. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will be their God and they will be his people. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning will be no more. Sorrow will be no more. For why? The, the former things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. I long for that day. I don't know about you, but I, I want to be there. And so spend time in those passages because it's going to cultivate an affection for that day. It's going to drive you to, to fixate on that day when the mercy that we're waiting for will be yours and will be yours fully. You can also memorize text, memorize passages like Psalm 1611. You make known to me the, 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 the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. That's a verse to go over daily. Daily. Why? Because it's going to remind us that the path of life is not a path that's going to be found in this world. It's not a path that's going to be found in, in false teaching. It's not a path that's going to be found in compromise. The path of life, God reveals to us, and he's revealed it to us in his word. But it's also going to remind us that the joys that we're longing for, the joy that we've been created for, as C.S. Lewis says, if we find ourselves unsatisfied with the joys of this world, it should cause us to think that we've been created for another world. That those joys, that the, the fullness of joy is only going to be ours in the presence of God. And so if we're tempted to live for that joy and to chase that joy here, then we're tempted to look for something we're never going to find. But then he also says the pleasures at your right hand forevermore. There's a lot of false teaching out there that will offer you a lot of pleasure in this life. But none of it will offer you the pleasures forevermore, the pleasures unending. It will offer you emptiness and it will offer you that idea of saying, I need more and I need more and I need more and you'll never be fulfilled. And so safeguard yourself by reminding yourself that, uh, that the ultimate goal is the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Let me encourage you also, have relationships with other believers in Christ that are gonna encourage you in this way. I hope you're a part of a small group here. Whether it's a Compass small group or a men's small group or a women's small group or a Thrive small group, that circle of friends are gonna be a safeguard for you to help you maintain that eternal focus, that eager focus on eternal life. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day, what day? The day of the mercy of the Lord drawing near. You know, as I consider this text that Jude is writing to us to contend for the faith, as I consider this text, this passage of building ourselves up in our most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, 
watching, keeping ourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's one of the many times that I'm thankful that Christianity is not a solo sport, but it's a team sport. That God has designed us to be together, that God has designed us to be a body of Christ, that this is truly an all-hands-on-deck call. We need each other. We need every one of us to be doing this, to be shoring up our defenses, to be making sure we've got an airtight lock on any false teaching seeping in. But the call to contend for the faith is not just a combat mission. It's also a rescue mission. Look at verses 22 through 23. Jude says, Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. What Jude is saying is as we await the mercy that's going to be ours at the revelation of Jesus Christ, there are times and there are others amongst us and, and we need to be extending that same mercy to them. Conduits of God's mercy and grace to other people around us. And who are the people around us that we need to be attentive to? It's the people that have fallen prey. It's the victims of the false teaching and the false teachers. There's three groups that Jude addresses here in these verses in verses 22 through 23. The first he addresses are those who doubt. Those who doubt. That word doubt in the original in the Greek there, it's a word that meant to waver. It's a word that meant to be unsure. And so these are the, the people struggling with false teaching. Not knowing about that book that's on the Christian top 20 list. Not knowing about this person that uh, all their family members are following on social media. Not, not knowing about this particular song that's on the radio that's got a catchy tune. They're, they're wavering. They're doubting. They need somebody to come alongside them. Somebody who's more seasoned in their faith. Somebody who's perhaps a more mature believer to come alongside them and to love them and to extend to them mercy with patience. And to say to them, this is something that doesn't measure up with God's word, and so we need to make sure that, that we're guarding against this. We need to have the mindset of Christ as he had in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 and 36. It says there that as Jesus went through all the cities and the villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction, it says this, when he saw the crowds, he what? He had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Brothers and sisters, it may be that there may be some amongst us who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, and, and we need to have compassion on them. We need to have mercy on those who doubt. But second, there's another group. It's the group that need to be snatched from the fire. This is the group that's on the verge of buying into the false teaching. They're reading the books, so to speak. In our terms, they're podcasting these people. They're engaging with them. They're putting up the quotes on Facebook. They're saying, oh, this song is such a great song, and I love this song, and it's so rich, and it's so good. They're people who, for them, the, the dangers of God's judgment, the fires of God's judgment are becoming an increasing reality. Again, these may be immature believers who really just need more aggressive instruction and correction and, and pursuit, but some of them may be unbelievers. Some of these may be people who think that there's salvation in osmosis, that it's about proximity and not profession. And so these are the people that Jude says need to be snatched from the fire. In the word of God, his judgment, his wrath is often associated with fire. In Nahum 1, 6, 
Nahum 1.6, the prophet says, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. And then 2 Peter 3.7, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire and being kept until the day of judgment and destruction on the ungodly. That fire, that judgment of God, there are some who are hanging, who are dangling. Just like Jonathan Edwards in his analogy, over the, the flames of the fire with the fire coming up and, and licking at that thread. And we need to snatch them from the flames. We need to be on guard. We need to be loving them. We need to be pursuing them. That word snatch, it's an aggressive word. If you picture somebody who's in the street and they've got a bus bearing down on them and they don't know that that bus is coming down on them, you're going to plead and implore and yell, but eventually you are gonna rush out and push them out of the way of that oncoming bus. Or perhaps somebody who's on a ledge, on a rooftop or on a bridge and thinking about jumping, if you're there, you are gonna snatch them back from that ledge. You're gonna pull them back away from the danger to save them in the process. And that's Jude talking about this second group. They need to be snatched from the fires and warned about the dangers of, of entertaining these false teachers, of tolerating false teaching. And then there's the third group, the group that needs to be shown mercy with fear. These may be the false teachers themselves or their disciples, those for whom there's absolutely no wavering anymore. They have bought in hook, line, and sinker. They are disciples of the false teaching. And Jude says these people need to be approached with caution, with great caution. He says with fear. In fact, he says with fear, hating the garment that is stained by the flesh. It's a reference and allusion back to Zechariah chapter three, verses three through four. There the prophet says, now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And so in Zechariah chapter three, the filthy garments are connected with the sin and the iniquity. And so Jude is saying that we need to treat those that are the, the false teachers and the disciples of the false teachers and the ones that say they're all in and they've bought into this. We need to treat them with fear. We need to treat them with an understanding of the, the sin that's marking their lifestyle. We need to be cautious around them. We need to pray for them. Yes, we need to have mercy on them, but, but with a, a proper fear of being contaminated by the, the false teaching itself or the sinful lifestyle that they are promoting. It's like not too long ago, I was sitting holding Sam, one of my twins, before going to, to preach at Third Nine on a Sunday night. And I was ready to go. And, and about 30 minutes before I left, Sam, who had been fine the rest of the day, decided that everything on the inside of his stomach needed to be on the outside of his stomach. And as I'm holding him there, it all came out and thankfully it all hit him. And that was the first thing I did was this, right? <laughs> and then I said, Amanda. And uh, she went to go start the tub and I, I got up and I held my, my child out there and I just walked to the tub and I said, don't touch me, 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 right? Until you get to the tub and some of you are judging me, but if you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. 
right? You, you, you know the, the filth of, of clothing that's been contaminated. And you're going, I don't want what's on you anywhere on me, okay? This is not going to be how this works. Well, that's what Jude's talking about here. He's saying that there's a sinful lifestyle. There's a sinful teaching. There's a sinful belief that we need to have just as much of a caution, just as much of an arm's length approach to these people. This third group that we're talking about, these are very much, these are not believers. And yet they may come in and they may sit down amongst us. They may walk in and they may become part of a small group. And it's going to be our job as believers to still have mercy on them, but with a fear and a caution that may end up being a, 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 a praying for them. Praying that God would reveal his truth to them and their error to them so that they might be saved. All of this, all three of these groups and the different ways that we approach them, it's all part of God's plan for us to contend for the faith. It's all part of the way that we can make sure that we're shoring up the defenses of our church. It's, yes, a combat mission, but it's also a rescue mission. So it's point number three for us this morning. It's this, lovingly pursue the lost and deceived. Lovingly pursue the lost and deceived. Again, this is an element that requires all hands on deck. And it's only going to be to the degree that we love one another that we will be lovingly pursuing the lost and deceived among us. If you don't love the people sitting in the row that you are sitting in this morning, you're not going to care whether or not they're doubting. You're not going to care whether or not they're drifting. But what God wants from us as a body of Christ, as a family together, is to care about one another to that level. I need you, you need me, we need one another in our lives to make sure that none of us are doubting or drifting or slipping so that we can support one another, so that we can have one another's back, so that we can stand guard together, man our post together, and all do our part to ensure that we will be safe from false teaching. And there's going to be times that we see people who need to be pursued and brought back or redeemed, or they need the gospel to begin with. And we need to be ready. We need to be ready to go after them, to love them, and to take the gospel to them. The best way that we can do that is to make sure that we are vigilant students of the word of God, to make sure that we are accurate to the text of scripture, that we know the word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. That verse in that, those two verses are telling us that God has given us his word so that we can know it in order to use it. There are going to be some who doubt and we need to come alongside them with the word of God for, for purposes of, of training, for purposes of, of correction, there are those that, that you are going to come into contact with who Galatians 6.1, we need to, to see a brother or sister caught in a trespass, in a sin, and we need to come alongside that person gently and restore them. But then there's going to be times where we see a brother or sister in a willful, willful pattern of, of disobedience, of sin. And so we may need to be willing to, to sit down with them and have a sterner conversation, more of a reproof, a rebuking, a correction with them. 
And so we need to make sure that, that if we're going to be looking for those that are falling prey to false teaching, that we know well what the plumb line is. And the plumb line is the word of God. We need to know that, that we are confident in the gospel, in the genuine article, so that when we see what's not the genuine article, we can identify it and we can go after seeing that it is corrected. What this all comes down to is that we need to be zealous as Jude began this epistle, yes, for our own personal holiness. As we talked about at the beginning of our time in verse 20, we need to make sure that, yes, we are keeping ourselves in the, the, the love of God. Be zealous for your own holiness, but you also need to be zealous for the holiness of your brothers and sisters in Christ around you too. Loving them, pursuing them, making sure that, that nobody is falling prey to false teaching. Again, this is an all-hands-on-deck call for us to keep that keen eye out for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters. Contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. That was Jude's rally cry to the believers that he was writing to. And again, it wasn't just to the pastors that he wrote to. He didn't say, hey, pastors, you contend for the faith. He didn't just write to the, the leaders. You contend for the faith. He wrote to all believers, contend for the faith. And if he were here today, he would say to every believer in this room, it's your responsibility as well to contend for the faith. So I hope we will answer this call together as a body of Christ here, that we will join together, that we will do our part to shore up our doctrinal and devotional defenses and perimeters in our own lives, but that also together corporately, we will be building ourselves up together on the, the most holy faith, on the foundation of God's word, that we will be united as a body of Christ in full agreement on the things and the matters of scripture. And I also pray that we will be keeping a keen eye out for one another, that we will be zealous for one another, that if we see a brother or sister drifting, that we will go after them, that we will pursue them with the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we will call them back to what is right and what is true in the word of God. As we wait for the mercy that is going to be revealed, praise God, through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And so, yes, we, we do all these things. And as we close together, we say, amen, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for this passage, for this text. God, we thank you for your patience with us. We thank you, God, for leading us here to this church, a church that does champion sound doctrine, orthodoxy, truth, the word of God as inerrant and authoritative. But Lord, I pray that none of us would take that for granted and think that we're immune to the things that we've talked about this morning. I pray that all of us would go home with an even greater resolve to shore up our defenses, to make sure that there's no avenue in our life where false teaching can creep in unnoticed. God, may this be a strong body of Christ to be able to do great and wonderful things for you and for the gospel in this area. Lord, I pray by your grace we would be protected from these things, protected from division, protected from, uh, from drifting, protected from falling away. Lord, but th that all of us would be truly and genuinely saved sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, being kept by God for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last times. Lord, in the meantime, help us to be found faithful as we strive to keep ourselves in the love of God for your glory in Christ's name, amen.